Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Eddie Perfect is perfect at everything he does. A composer, singer-songwriter, actor, comedian and a fantastic human. His talents have taken him from Australia's beloved play school to composing the entire score of Beetlejuice the musical on Broadway, culminating in four Tony Award nominations. You may have seen his brilliant Shane Warne the Musical, for which he received a Helpman Award for Best New Australian Work. This interview is honest and raw and taps into the very real vulnerability of performers in lockdown. Eddie is kind and funny and completely authentic. My name's Eddie Perfect. And I'm a laughaholic. I would say comedy is the hardest thing to do. It is. And I'm more than happy to commit my life to try to make people laugh. Laughaholics. Celebrating laughter. Recording in progress. Ed. Is it Edward? Were you, were you baptised Edward? Were you given that name? Should we not be Christianity? Oh, Edmund. I like Edmund. Did you ever use it? Did they call you that at school? No, I didn't like Edmund almost from the beginning, I think. And I was the one that shortened it to Eddie and made sure that it was Eddie whenever it was used in school. And I, and I don't really, I think that happened very, very early and I don't remember I don't remember much time at school when I was called Edmund. So. I got that changed on the roll and it was, yeah, so from a very early age I changed my name to Eddie and I haven't been an Edmund ever since, but I'm not that I'm kind of coming roaring back to being an Edmund or anything in in my uh, (laughs) later years or middle years, but I certainly have softened a bit. I Like, you know, Ed, I don't mind Ed. Yeah, Ed's good. I like Edmund too because it's really, it's uncommon. My dad was an Eddie and I'm at one point I um I adopted a galah in the days when I still thought birds in cages were okay and his name was Ted and which was my dad's my dad's name was Eddie Edward and um, when we came to Australia he became Ted and so I said oh you know yeah. this bird's called Ted and they said yeah it's short for shit Ed <laughs> so I told my dad he he wasn't he wasn't very impressed but I like Eddie and I look yeah up- well I went through all of the nicknames I remember they were kind of laid out to me a little bit like you know you could be Ted or you could be Ned that's another nickname for Ed but I was like Eddie there were no other Eddies I had no I was not modelling myself on any other Eddie I was just like Eddie is what feels Right, and but there aren't that many Eddies around. I must say, I, I could probably count on the one hand the amount of Eddies I've met Eddie you know, in person. Well, I haven't met Eddie Munster. Neither have I. But I wish I had. Not real, but um, hang on, he was but, real, you know. Ed. He was. He was in my childhood. <laughs> Every now and then you meet an Eddie, and it's like, oh, cool. But um, yeah, no, that was uh, that was. I gave it to myself. I like it. I noticed that because I've done a deep dive, as I like to do with all Laughaholics guests, I like to do a deep dive down the rabbit hole that is the internet. And I noticed that, um, well, I mean, you've mentioned this before and I don't want to labour on it too much, but you went to St Bede's and um, you were ducks of the school, which I think is, I mean, I don't know anyone in, my, in real life who was a ducks of the school. So were you a studious kid or was it? Were yeah. The, yeah. 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 I was really into school. I did all humanities subjects. I didn't do any maths or sciences. Good job. So it was all kind of like artsy-fartsy kind of stuff. 
yeah, I was a good student. Uh, that was my focus when I was in high school. I did a lot of extracurricular stuff. I started doing like, you know, I sang in choirs and, you know, what else was I doing in, in the odd sort of play or amateur play or amateur musical that was normally school-based. But I spent most of my time focusing on studies and, and doing well. So, yeah, I guess I was like, yeah, I guess I was a bit of a bit nerdy. In That's all right. Hey, 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 it served you well. Did you know that you have something in common with St. Bede? You've both survived a plague. He survived a plague in 686 AD and we've both survived a plague. So who would have thought you that go. you and St. Bede have something in common? I thought that was a really cool fun fact. That is a fun fact that at St. Bede's, you know, they didn't go into Bede the saint very much at our high school, but they but they were very into St. John Baptist de La Salle, who was um, the head of the La Salian Brothers movement and founded St. Bede's and uh, quite a bunch of other schools. People probably be quite familiar with um, the de La Salle Brothers and that movement, that kind of like educational movement. So we learned a lot about St. John Baptist de La Salle, but very little about St. Bede for... I think all I can remember is that he was like, um, you know, he was the guy that copied out the books. I don't know if he even wrote yeah. them. I feel like he just kind of copied them. He was also the guy, and I didn't know this, but it's now stored away in my, in my massive brain. He, was, he helped popularise the term AD or Anno Domini for time. He was the one pushing that movement. Can you believe it? He was quite the rebel. You know, a, a plague survivor and saying we should put AD after, you know, after everything. Oh, my God. I know. And all of his mates would have been like eye-rolling. <laughs> stop, stop trying to make AD happen, mate. It's never going to happen. I know. So when you, when you were at St. Bede's, I'm assuming it was a boys' school, was it? Yeah, it was an all-boys' school, all-boys' Catholic school. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... My experience has been when I'm talking to people and they've come from that sort of environment, it's like something happens where you have to break out because you, you've got this very strict moral code and lots of rules. When did little Eddie Perfect decide that he wanted to be an entertainer? Quite late. I was always doing music and a bit of theatre, you know, because I enjoyed doing it. So I sang in a couple of choirs. I sang in a, a kind of a contemporary a cappella choir with people sort of my age, you know, from the age of about 15. But I also sang in the, what was then called the Melbourne Chorale and is now called the uh, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra Chorus. At that time, it was about a 120-voice choir that performed with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And so I sang with that choir because my dad was in that choir and um, that's a lot of voices it's beautiful unbelievable to be inside that sound and singing things like you know Carmina Burana by Karl Orff or Beethoven's Mr Solemnus or St Matthew's Passion or a lot of the big kind of choral classic staples um Handel Handel's, Handel's Messiah, Messiah. <laughs> Handel's Messiah <laughs> yeah. and everybody stands up for the Hallelujah Chorus yes they always do yeah got some great Corrals in there. It's for gorgeous. we like sheep. That, that was always one that I loved. <laughs> for we like sheep. <laughs> I know. I, re I remember seeing, listening to Handel's Messiah at some something in the park, you know, near Christmas, and everyone had their candles. And then everyone stood up for the chorus. And it was really hard getting out of your beanbags. <laughs> like, all these people scrambling to get up and stand <laughs> at attention. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's great. I love that stuff. Yeah, and people in beanbags aren't known for their core strength either, so <laughs> that's, that's right. particularly well, cruel. Oh, well, that would be me. 
I stopped taking beanbags to put that's terrible. Terrible. Hallelujah. You got it. You got it, guys. You got it. So your dad your dad was a singer. Was did he introduce I mean, what were the stuff what were the things that you laughed at as a family? What did you watch on telly? What did you race home from school to watch? Oh, um, so comedy, I remember watching comedy that my dad wanted to watch before it made me laugh. What I remember, uh, uh, like, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister yes. and Rump, Rumpole of the Bailey. Oh, I um, love that. That my dad loved. And it took me a really long time to sort of understand what the comedy was in those. But English English comedies, you know, where it was... Um, you know, a combination of scripted comedy, sophisticated scripted comedy, and then it wasn't until much later that the American sort of situational comedy came in. There was a definite, if it wasn't overt, it was certainly implied sense that the English comedy was superior to American comedy, but then, you know, American comedy started to sort of filter into my consciousness as I as I got older, and I've always had those two together. So I, I remember, you know, watching the goodies and, you know, the goodies, uh, I don't remember too much of it specifically, but I remember these sort of extended sort of almost like meditations on certain ideas that were really visual, really clown-based, often kind of surreal or ab- or abstract, which is really cool as well. They were very surreal, weren't they, the goodies? I mean, I, I watched yeah. it and I've, I found that my male friends liked the goodies more than me. I mean, I, I, I remember the the episode with all the Rolf Harrises, and I thought that was funny, but now we can't talk about him because he's been cancelled. But, um, I know. one's yeah. enough. And- isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More than one is uh, highly yeah. triggering. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that one. I remember like a giant cat climbing the big Ben, and you know, like I, you know, I remember the that that sort of visual side of things that was always really great and then as i got older you know um the young ones oh my god how good were they had a big impact faulty towers had a big impact monty python i sort of discovered on my own but blackadder sort of ben elton sort of stuff really started to feature and you know seeing rowan atkinson do his sort of monologues and things like that was really big and you know, that was sort of comedy. The English comedies were, were very big in our house. But then as I got older, you know, um, film culture started to permeate the house a little more because, I mean, God, this is such a full-on thing. But, like, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't until I was in high school that I think we got a, a, a VCR player. So, yeah, no one had yeah, them. Yeah, so it was like what was on TV. And what was on TV was the ABC and watching you know, these kind of English comedies. And so when, you know, you could go to the video store and rent a VHS or, or go to the cinemas, then, you know, we were really into, as a family, I remember watching a lot of Steve Martin movies. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, The Jerk, The Man with Two Brains. Man with Two Brains, I mean, it still is really great. It's great. It's fantastic. Bit of Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks was sort of a little on the edge from my, my father's taste but i do remember seeing um you know the producers you know like things with you would get in via um actors like you know um gene wilder, gene wilder or zero mostel you know like how funny was zero mostel 
And Dom DeLuise. I mean, have you seen Haunted Honeymoon? <laughs> I haven't. It's one of the. It's, it's seriously. It's got because it's got Gene Wilder and his late wife Gilda Radner. Oh, of course, Gene's dead now too. And Zero, and uh, not Zero, must still Dom DeLuise plays this aunt, and they're in this house, and they do this version of Ball and the Jack, and it's just seriously. You have to look it up when when you, we finish talking because oh, I love that. It's just. It's really. It's gorgeous. It's it's it, it sounds terrible, but if I need a laugh, I'll just what that put that on, and because Gilda Radner was just you know she and Gene yeah, Wilder were so in love they were so so in love and I just I love that movie yeah I, Mel Brooks what a what a gem discovering those things you know that get passed around amongst sort of students in high school I, I also remember um, at the time of me being kind of in my early teens or mid teens the um, Naked Gun movies were big. <laughs> yeah. Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, and I was really taken with, I saw two of them at the cinemas. There was one that had O.J. Simpson in it. That's right, before he was cancelled. There was a one where um, there's a secret plot that people are being, you know, assassins are just, just press this button and it turns people into assassins and Leslie Nielsen's playing the catcher at a baseball game and, <laughs> um, you know, Enrico Palazzo, the opera singer who's singing the anthem, is like, becomes the uh, is potentially the killer and <laughs> it's so, so stupid it yeah. was very dry comedy again it was not like um obviously it was american but it had like a lot of great sort of one-liners but it also what i loved was that it built on that kind of super sleuth you know detective genre yeah. of him you know like walking and thinking and voiceover and then suddenly his feet are walking in like a jungle and he looks up and he's like where am i you know that kind of Absurd, absurdism, which I loved, and then I uh, and then I got really into Monty Python via this double cassette album thing I had, which oh, had all great. of their songs and sketches on it. And I used I learnt those in year eleven and twelve. I learnt those sketches with my friend. We used to, we used to perform them at kind of school speech nights, like the but how the good were they? The, 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 cheese, the, the cheese shop, the cheese shop sketch is still <laughs> my favourite. Or the five minute argument. <laughs> It's just yeah. It's so well, the great. tea shop sketches is, is so um, is so amazing that I think of it every time I go to a place and they haven't got the thing that I want. <laughs> every time. <laughs> so I've got to tell you that I have had one of your songs in my brain because I mean. We've known each other for a long time. And yeah. I, was, I was thinking how, I can't remember where we met, but I'll, I'll tell you the first time I saw you and it was at Chapel Off Chapel and I mm. had been doing a one-woman show and at the end of the night we came out and the whole foyer used to turn into this. The piano bar. The piano bar. And, yeah. and you, were, you were there and I remember saying to my director, who is that guy? And he said, it's Eddie Perfect. And I said, that can't be his name. And he said, it is his name. And I said, I wonder if he's related to Christine Perfect from Fleetwood Mac, but I'm sure you're not. Are you? What? Christine Perfect from Fleetwood Mac? Yeah. There's a per- Christine Perfect? Well, How Chris- am I only finding about this now? I'll be- I thought you knew that. So Christine McVie was Christine Perfect before she married John McVie in Fleetwood Mac. There wow, you go. she changed her name from, from Perfect. perfect to why, would, why would you do that? That's right. So well, I remember. I can tell you, I had a whole family full of people that have done that. <laughs> no one in my, no one, no one wants my surname. I love I'm it. Like, I think they're it's like, great. oh, we'll just be Cochrane. That's my wife's surname. We'll just be, I'll be Kitty Cochrane or Charlotte Cochrane. And I was like, what? You can choose. I never knew you could choose. I put up with a whole life of being 
But you couldn't then. Any you couldn't. You couldn't. You can't. You couldn't. I mean, I changed my name to Stacy when I was eight because I was sick of Tracy because clearly I had a great imagination. But anyway, going back to when I first <laughs> saw you, <laughs> I was watching this this Wunderkind singing all your own comp- compositions at the piano bar, and I just went, "My God, that guy is a superstar!" And here you are. I mean, you've been a superstar forever. And that's pretty nice of you. If people don't know. Oh, but no, Eddie, I mean, you know, I have people on Laughaholics because I love them and I admire them and I want to talk about what drives you and what's shaped you. And if I think about, I mean, everyone brings up Offspring and if you're listening outside of Australia, look for Offspring because it's, I think, one of the, the best Australian shows ever made with an extraordinary ensemble cast. And Eddie, you played Mick, the boyfriend of... Billy, who's mm. the love to hate her sister of Nina. Yep. And I know I can say this because, you know, I could say it's a spoiler alert, but the show's, you know, everyone can, can watch it if they want. There's this thing where there's an incident and you wrote this song called Your Sisters Are Six. I don't want to spoil oh, it. Yeah. And I've had it on my brain all day because I've loved it forever. I slept with your sister We got drunk on vodka And I totally kissed her Things got out of hand I felt rejected and pissed Hurt and lonely But as far as sex With your sister goes There's something you should know And there's a moment, I mean, because Offspring was one of those shows that just grabbed you by the heart. It was really, really funny and, and, and great content, great storylines and, and the whole fantasy thing of Nina going off in her imagination because, of course, Asha yeah. Ketty. Asha Ketty, I mean, what, a, what an actor. But um, there's this moment in the middle of you singing Your Sisters Are Six and they turn to each other and they start laughing and then they have, they have this big hug. And I, I had a big cry. Oh. That song for the end of act, uh, of season one of Offspring was um, it was pretty crazy because it was the first season doing it. It was very hectic. I'd written a bunch of songs during it. And then we were only 10 days off shooting the final episode when they asked me to write it. I had a quick meeting with um, Deborah Oswald, who was the creator and the lead writer of the show, and Imogen Banks, the producer, and Michael Lucas, who's one of the writers, um, uh, John Edwards, one of the producers, and they were like, we want we want this song at the end of the season and, you know, kind of a funny song that brings the sisters back together, but it needs to be sort of humiliating. And there's a real theme with, with Deb Oswald, which is sort of like this redemption through humiliation, which is a really big part of Offspring. Like, mm. you know, you can, you can make a mistake, but uh, you kind of have to be humiliated to be brought back into the fold. And so, yeah, like, you know, they performed that song live. We did all the music live. There wasn't any kind of like going into the studio and then miming it. You know, we every time we performed at the pub, we said it up. And I think it makes a big difference in the sound. It sounds like a pub gig. And it was great. It was so yeah, it was great. It was so great. I mean, and even in the background, you know, the bitchy girls going, can you imagine what it would be like being the, the, the person he's singing yeah. about? I think it would have been probably sometime in 2009 mm. that I did that. Because we shot the pilot when... Kitty, my firstborn daughter, was two months old. 
and then we would have done the first season sort of pretty quickly after that. So maybe 2010. So there you go. That's that's 11 years ago. Jesus, you know. I know. Time I know. and time I, is so crazy. And so if we go forward in time a bit, because I remember you talking about being on Broadway where you, you'd gone to live because your friend Tim Minchin, the acclaimed Tim Minchin, had said yeah. it was a good time to be pitching ideas. And so you upped, upped and left, took the family, went to live in New York, which is just you know every performer's dream. And I heard you on an interview talking about it might have been a preview or the opening night for Beetlejuice, which you composed. Uh, I'm not sure. Did you do the whole thing or yeah? Yeah, Beetlejuice. I wrote the music and lyrics for yep. the whole musical. I yeah. mean, and it won. It didn't win any Tony Awards, but it got sorry, nominated. It nominated. It got nominated, yeah. and and you and, and of course you you rewrote this one of the songs for the Tony Awards, and that performance is incredible. But what I loved was how you. You'd said in another interview that you were you were you know at the, up the back listening, watching the show, and you could hear someone singing along every single word. And I think it was it was either Kitty or Charlotte who knew everything and just belting it out. And you said at the time, you know, really doesn't get much better than that if your kids are really into what you're creating. And I just thought, what an extraordinary experience for your children to be yeah. growing up in, be immersed in in such incredible creative culture it is really nice and what's really nice too is that you know i'm often you know my process involves kind of making demos and listening them back and every now and then i'll play them for the girls because they're really good at being able to to hear a song once and and then you go well what what is that song about and if they can't tell you what the song's about or if it can't if they think it's about something completely different you know you know that you haven't done your job correctly because in the theater what's different to an album where you can kind of listen to stuff over and over again in the theatre, that song happens once in real time and it has to have an effect on the audience in that moment and they have to understand what it's saying and how it's trying to say it and if it's got jokes, the jokes need to land. And it's quite rare to have an audience who have never heard, well, you're making something, you've never heard a song before. So I play stuff for my kids. But what it means is sometimes I'll go to the, you know, they were watching a Broadway show and their memory of the lyrics to like some of the big songs like Dead Mom are the original demo lyrics. So they're singing lyrics that nobody has <laughs> heard before because they kind of can't, they haven't been, they haven't updated their draft. You know what I mean? <laughs> so what do you, what do you watch with them? Do you watch, te- I mean, obviously in lockdown, have you been, have you shown them movies or things that you grew up with that you think would make them laugh? I mean, it's because how, yeah. old, how old are your girls now? Uh, they're 12 and 9. Oh, and, yeah, like, it. you know, every parent forces their taste or their own personal like, kind of cultural experiences onto their kids to yeah. some degree. Sound of music much? <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time it's the first time we've kind of revisited those works since we sort of saw them back in the day. And so sometimes they either don't hold up because they're not as funny or they're not as culturally kind of relevant. But also with kids I find it because, you know, film and TV is of such high quality now sometimes the, just the production values are off putting to them and it's interesting it's not just about like you know something's black and white and they'll be like i don't want to watch that because it's in black and white although they do have an initial thing like we watched some like a hot which is such a brilliant film holds up completely oh isn't it oh and i just love the costumes and how incredibly believable 
Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis uh, in those, and, and oh, of course Marilyn in and, those frocks. And Marilyn oh. is so funny in that film. That's yes. one of the things that I think you always get sort of overlooked in the iconography of Marilyn Monroe is just what a brilliant comic actress she is. She is so funny in that so film. So funny. So yeah. clever in her comedy in that film. So, yeah, but then there are things like, so, for example, if you go back and watch, again, Gene Wilder, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or, you know, the original film from the... And the best, and the best. They couldn't improve upon yeah. that. I just didn't like the, the whole second opening, one. The whole opening, the whole thing of where, you know, movies used to open with the credits and they yes. go for ages with everybody's names on it, which they don't do anymore. And my kids are like, what is... <laughs> <laughs> When's this movie starting? Like it, the original film is like you're watching chocolate being made in a factory and it's like it gets poured and and they're just like, sorry, what what is happening here? And I'm like, it's an old movie. That's just how they used to that's how they used to open old movies. They're just a taking time that doesn't exist anymore. So those things kind of alter and change. Yeah, we do share a sense of humor, although now I don't know if you notice this, but now I feel like um the family can become a little bit more uh, segregated in in that someone can take a device away yes. and watch exactly what they want, and so yep. you end up. And I'm always like, "Come on, let's let's goggle let's goggle box it. Like let's all get together on the couch and watch the same thing." And so we do find reasons to do that. Like comedy is is not just about you laughing; it's about learning what makes the people in your life laugh. And yes. I like to laugh. Yep. I have a really loud laugh. I know that music is a massive part. I mean, it's, it's, you know, for me, if I have to describe Betty Perfect, it's composer comedian. What drives you most? Is it the music or is it, the, is it being funny? I mean, and I know you do a lot of stuff that's not funny. I mean, your singing performances are just incredible. And, and you know, your comedy festival shows are fantastic. You, you know, you've, you're the triple threat. I probably had a... I've never had a fraught relationship with comedy where I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I should prove that I can do serious stuff because it's really, comedy's really hard, really hard to do. Probably I would say comedy is the hardest thing to do. It is. And I'm more than happy to commit my life to trying to make people laugh. But I've always also been interested in, for example, I'm not sure whether I would go back to doing solo comedy because... I'm not as funny there as I am when I'm writing for character or for, for you know, con- with the context of a scene, you know, or given circumstances around um, particular characters interacting with each other. I just find that is a more fertile place for comedy, you know, the differences in what people think and believe or the differences in what people believe and how they behave, differences between what people want and the ridiculous things they do that sabotage themselves when they're trying to get it. You know, they're, yeah. they're things that, that really interest me. And I've gotten to a point with music where I, I am confident being able to take those ideas and to be in control of music enough that I can use music as a way to express those ideas. And that took a really long time. And so while I really like music, for me, it's almost like a, a delivery vehicle for for everything, you know, comedy, emotion, timing, uh, sometimes, you know, nostalgia, like, or sometimes to just draw upon people's cultural background with certain music. So you go, okay, well, you know, I can write a, a Latin tune and have music that the lyrics, that, like a sprightly Latin tune, but lyrics that go completely against that. And so you've got lots of different forces and tools. It's just like having a big, like a big palette of colours or a big toolbox from which you can kind of communicate with and you can get away with more in music. It's sort of, it's disarming. You know, you go, okay, I'm in a song and then 
suddenly, you know, songs can take weird turns or you just, it's just automatically above naturalism. It's automatically heightened and it can be absurd and it can be fun and, and joyous and it's a really fun place to play in. So that's how I see music, less of, of, of like, uh, oh, God, I love music, which I do, but more like how can I mu- use music to say the thing that I want to say? When you decided that you were going to follow this path, why did you go to Perth? I mean, you could have gone to NIDA, but you crossed the country and you went to Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, which has an incredible alumni and incredible uh, reputation. What was it that took you there? And were you collaborating? Uh, is that where you met Tim Minchin? Yes. So I, well, just to answer the first part of the question, I wasn't on the path to being a writer or a composer when I went to Perth to study music theatre. I was interested in music. I'd been uh, performing music and playing music and I'd been in bands and all that sort of stuff like that. And, uh, and I'd also been in musicals and plays and I, and I liked that. But I was very much interested in going to Whopper to be a performer. And while I was there, I accidentally discovered writing songs for the stage. And then that took over. So it was while I was at Whopper that that sort of seed got planted. And for a while, you know, performing and writing were going along in kind of tandem, in parallel. But I can trace back this one specific moment where I very much knew that writing was going to win. And that was when um, I, in my third year at university, I wrote a song cycle and instead of performing in a, in a musical slot, I um, rehearsed this song cycle I'd written with the first year music theatre students and we and we performed it and I just played the piano, the cast sort of sang all the songs and it was so thrilling because it was like it felt better than performing, even though I was sort of, yes, I was there playing the piano and that feeling has never left. I find it more satisfying to write something, stand up the back of the theatre completely anonymously and watch it. I get more satisfaction from that than I do performing something and then getting applauded and taking a bow at the end. I'm always like, oh, yeah, well, you know, anyone can do that. <laughs> no, they can't, Eddie. <laughs> no, they can't um, do that. <laughs> it's pretty easy. You know, also I, I go, okay, well, I, it's endlessly fascinating. It's one of those sort of art forms where, you know, you're never going to master it. It's always going to be an interesting journey through it to learn about yourself and not just how you write but you know what you write about and who you write with and what characters you can create you're always sort of constantly trying to surprise yourself and I don't think that's sort of well that hasn't run out of energy yet so it feels like an art form is a lifelong pursuit and I discovered that while I was studying. But why WAPA? Why did you choose WAPA? Because I wanted to be I wanted to be a musical theatre performer. And that's the best course? That's what I wanted and I love musicals so I got that but I also learned how to make musicals, which was something I discovered while I was there and something which sort of sustains me and uh, it wasn't part of the course. It just sort of happened sort of organically in in parallel. But I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work with some really cool people like David King, who was the head of the course, is a brilliant composer. He was writing a musical with Nick Enright, who has now passed away, but who is one of Australia's great playwrights and also wrote lyrics and wrote the book for many musicals. They wrote a musical together called... Um, uh, the Good Fight, uh, which I worked on as a researcher developer and got to interview them about their process and got to see how, you know, a workshop worked and how a feedback session was run and all those sorts of things. So, you know, I very much learnt 
about that craft while I was studying. And I met Tim probably for the sum total of 25 seconds at Perth. <laughs> yeah. So I met him very briefly and I, and I didn't actually hang out with Tim and, until I was, um, we'd both graduated. We both moved back to Melbourne. He was living in Fitzroy North. I went over to his pl- place in North Fitzroy because um, a mutual friend of ours, John O'Hara, had said, oh, you know, you should work with Tim because I-, I wanted to get out from behind the piano on some of my songs and, and stand out front. And I thought, oh, you know, I need a piano player. So I went over to Tim's house, I played him some of my songs, and then he played me a whole bunch of his songs. And we're like, oh, cool, let's be- we actually do similar thing, just, you know, writing songs for the stage that are comedic in nature and, and that we sort of perform and it was sort of, yeah, it was because it was um, the most economic direct point between, you know, wanting to be a writer and a performer and doing it. It's like when you write your own stuff, you get on stage and you do it. There's no, you, know, you don't have to deal with anyone else. But I did, at that point, I've been doing doing it for a few months and I wanted to be able to, you know, not be, I always felt like the piano was a bit of a barrier between me and the audience. And so for, for you know, I think it almost took a year, Tim played piano on a couple of tours for me and my band. And That's incredible. What do you think now that Tim Minchin, you know, has had such global success with Matilda and he was your piano player? I love that. Yeah, the parallels are crazy. I mean, we we, we shared a bill at the Butterfly Club. And if anyone's been to the Butterfly Club in Melbourne, it's, yeah. it's 50, 50 seats. There's no... It's fantastic. There's no audio equipment in there. There's just a kind of, there's an upright piano. And on the back of it, gaffer taped on the back is a um, is a power board with a whole bunch of lights <laughs> plugged into it. So you kind of control the lighting by just turning yeah. lights on and off, which is always fun to me. You, you, once you learn the power board, yeah. you could create some good moods, but it was a very intimidating venue because, you know, you're so used to having a microphone is is such a psychological handle between you and the one when you don't have that and there's just people there and there's no you're just like standing in a living room essentially singing to people i found everyone finds that massively confronting so Mm. tim and i used to do split bills there so you know he would um he'd perform some of his songs i'd perform some of my songs he'd perform some of mine i'd perform some of his we did duets of our own material you know and we for a while there the butterfly club for 50 people a night we had a double bill going on. So, you know, we were very much doing the the same thing at the same time. Yeah. And then there's a really clear point in a solo cabaret performance career where it's really obvious you should be writing a musical and that's when you start to kind of compose multiple characters within songs and you start singing all the parts and it becomes kind of more difficult to perform than than it would be if you had a cast of people and I was like, all right, it's time to create a musical that's why i wrote shane won the musical because i was like i'm ready to write a musical now after six months of touring with the australian test team shane warne is home in melbourne trying to settle back into domestic life I'm doing the good husband thing Try to act stable while reading a label But the SMSs keep flooding in 
which won a swag of awards and um, was incredibly successful. It's been lauded internationally. I wanted to congratulate you not only on that, but um, when I was doing my research on you for this interview, I discovered you in um, Love in Lockdown with Lucy Durack, which is just so delightful and had a cry at that. Had a cry at that. Oh, because, well, because, no, yeah. because it was, because it, I, you know, and I recommend everyone watch it because you can't see Shane Warne the musical unless, unless um, Eddie does another run of it. But you can get online and watch Love in Lockdown, which was written by Lucy Durack and Robin Hope and um, with her partner, uh, Wayne, Robin Butler and Wayne Hope. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the librarians. And, I mean, they're just, what, what a force they are. But I just, oh, they're so good. They are so good. And I just loved the simplicity of the idea. And you teaching Lucy Durack's character how to play the the mandolin, the um, the ukulele. But it was so beautiful and so simple. And there was this moment where you talked about your feelings and and how you were feeling in lockdown. And I, you know, I did. I had a moment because we're all we're all here still. We're still stuck at home. And for those of us who are single, it's it's harder. Absolutely. I mean, I I even think back on I mean, that feels so long ago. And it was only a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that was in the first lockdown. So I, I'd just come back from New York. I was in Sydney. Um, we were locked down. Lucy was like, I've got this idea and sent me like a couple of the episodes, which are very quick, very easy to read. And I was like, this is just such a great, simple idea. Gorgeous. And then Wayne, <laughs> Wayne Hope is just sort of just like irrepressible guy. I just, I love him and Robin so much. They're like, how do we do this? So Lucy's in Melbourne, I'm in Sydney, and Wayne literally put together a kind of a big box with, you know, a tripod and external lights. He worked out which app we should download in order to film best. And then Lucy and I had lots of conversations about how should we how should we do this? Because, you know, we wanted to be on the end of each other's calls, but at the same time, the thing that we will be calling on is the thing that we want to film on. So we had to have a separate device that we were like calling each other. So it was a lot of like and it had that energy of we're locked down, we can't be together, uh, we still want to create stuff, we still want to respond to the world. How do we do this? And it had that energy and it was really exploratory and fun and frustrating and kind of crazy, but it got made. And what's really interesting is that a, a year on, I don't have any of that energy. It blows my mind that we we did it, that there was a very much, if, and it feels so long ago now, but there was very much in the first lockdown this sense of like art must continue. We must continue to, you know, find new ways to communicate with each other. But now in lockdown number six and homeschooling the kids, I can't, I can't write. I can't do anything. I, I'm like totally paralyzed by the whole thing. And I just can't even believe that I had the energy to to do that back then. I just feel like we're all all in sort of self-preservation mode, which is a little sad, but it's also like But it's true. The re- it's the reality. It's just, it's just what's happening. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, you put up a post just recently saying that you're creatively paralysed and a lot of us are feeling like that. Mm. And we know yeah. that we will improve, but I think it's really important that we acknowledge it, that we are feeling like that, that we are feeling exhausted because there's this low-lying, underlying level of grief um, because we're all performers and we can't perform. As I said to someone recently, I'm a comedian and I can't comede. I haven't been able to do it, you know. And, and who yeah. would have who would have thought when we started performing that someone would say, you can't do that and we're not going to tell you when you can do it again. It's like it's taking away our oxygen supply, isn't it? The problem is that I don't 
lack for inspiration. It's not like I've all my ideas have stopped, but this is what's happened to me. It's, it's almost like the, the little creative journey. Like I go, oh, I've got this idea. And then I go down to the, go sit at the piano or I go to my laptop to put it down. And it just evaporates. Like it just disappears really quickly. And then I'm like, oh, what was that? And I find it hard to stick at it and then it, nothing kind of comes of it. So I go away and then I get another idea and I come back. And then each time with that, with another sort of, sitting down, not able to see an idea through, it not coming to something, you know, kind of trying to push a little bit and then stopping, you start to add guilt to the mix, you know, why aren't, or frustration, why isn't this happening or happening in this way? And then you try and understand it and that doesn't really help you progress through it either. So I just got to the point where I was like, I'm lucky enough that I can, but I'm just going to put it aside until the kids go back to school. And then when I've got like, you know, what I would call staring into space time, you know, like at home, I can stare into space while I'm thinking about lyrics. And it's like, you know, the Sudoku in your brain of moving rhymes around, which I feel like is 99% of what my brain is. You know, I've probably got a weird look on my face and I'm just like looking into the distance. But when you're at home with a whole family, they're like, come in and they're like, how you going? Or what's going on? Or, oh, this happened. Or, you know what I mean? You're and then that's gone. That kind of concentration is is gone. So I just basically need to be able to procrastinate without anyone filling in the in the gaps, and that is impossible. And also not really having an end. You know, there's no other energy going anywhere else. You know, we're not doing stuff. We're not seeing stuff. It's hard to write when you don't know what it's for. And it's been so long since you know I've been. What I got. I'm really into this TV show called Alone, which is just my friends were like, you got to watch Alone. Yeah. It's a, essentially like Survivor, but you're not in a tribe. You're literally, they send 10, 10 contestants out into British Columbia to basically survive in the wilderness, and whoever survives the longest wins. So you can tap out at any time. But what is really interesting is seeing what happens to people when stuff isn't going in. You know, there's no there's no food going in, enough calories going in. There's no stimulation. Sort of slow down, you know. So, yeah, you're not, you're not eating as many calories as you need to sort of sustain your own body weight and then all of a sudden you know that starts this very weird mental draining thing where everything is lethargic and i'm like it's a bit like that with stimulants you know there's not really much going on there's no comp the, the connections you would normally make when you're writing something and then you go and talk to a friend and you talk about this idea and then you connect this dot over here or you see a play or you you know like the system the web that that supports creativity yes is is not there at the moment and you know i've pushed through it a little bit but now i'm at a point where i'm like oh, i can't do it I, yeah I can't do it i know that you have been cast in a stage show about dolly parton which has been shelved but is that is that happening i mean when we know when we can do it yeah i think they want to bring it back so uh this stuff comes to me like it comes in my email box and i read it and i just think it's so weird to me i see it you know, if there's an email from an age, my agent or from anyone going, got this gig coming up in six months' time, I can't even imagine it. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, it sounds great. But part of me is like, what's well, if that's going to happen? Or, or you know, <laughs> or it's so far away in the future. Who who cares? Just say, must say, yeah, sure, sounds great. You know, now that we're opening up, we have to go back to sort of performing again. And I remember because we've had a We've had an experience, Melbourne's had the experience of sort of doing this twice now. Yes. Being re-locked out and coming out. 
you know, there's a limit on your, uh, what you realize that you kind of have to be careful about where you put your energy. I miss doing stuff, but I really don't miss being busy. You know, that kind of stressful busy, like yep. this and that, this and that, this, you know, it feels so mindless now. I'm like, oh, I really miss the project that is like, yes, this is where all my energy is going, but the, you know, lots of little gigs and little meetings about that and how's it going to, you know, and just like that lifestyle. Wow. I don't, that's how you make your bread and butter as a performer in Australia, but it's tight. It's really tiring for every gig, no matter how small, there's like three meetings, you know, and you add them all together and it's just like this morass of meetings and then just little, little gigs where you just do it and you go to the next thing. And so I'm not missing that. I am missing working with people. Eddie Perfect, you are a scholar and a gentleman with a very nice surname. And <laughs> <laughs> thank you for giving me your time today. A pleasure, Tracy. Anytime. As we all know, podcasts are free to listen to, but they are certainly not free to create. The following extraordinary people have contributed their amazing talents to create Laughaholics, and I wholeheartedly recommend their businesses. Laughaholics audio production, editing and imaging, brilliantly executed by Daryl Misson. The Laughaholics logo was created by Rick Plumridge at Ricochet Graphics. The Laughaholics show theme was lovingly composed by Steve the Bastard. And for more information on the Laughaholics experience as a professional development tool, please go to tracybartram.com.au where you'll see my new website. Thank you so much to NME Digital for their amazing work. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Laughaholics. Celebrating laughter.